Let us open the precious Word of God to the ninth chapter of Romans and take up there verses 10 through 13. A profound passage of Scripture, these four verses, powerful verses they are, ignored and rejected by most, should humble and convict us that God loves us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if He hadn't chosen us in Him before the world began, He could not and would not love us. But He does love us because we are in Christ Jesus, His Son. And if you don't know that if you're in Christ Jesus, His Son this morning, then run to Him by faith and lay hold of Him by repenting of your sins and calling upon Him for mercy. That will not give you His righteousness, but He will give you assurance that He has placed His righteousness upon you. For faith is the first evidence, though a weak one, of His righteousness being on us. Then you're to add to that faith, virtue, knowledge, godliness, temperance, patience, brotherly kindness, and charity. And if you do those eight things, you can make your calling and election sure. There's no fear in a passage like this except a good, godly, sober fear that we might be found in Him. And so the Apostle Paul never rested that he might be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He counted all things but dung that he might win Christ. And that should be our holy ambition from a passage like this. It is a high and holy privilege to preach it. It is a weighty responsibility to preach it. Lord God, have mercy. I read to you Romans 9, 10 through 13. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Amen and amen. The word of the Lord. And not only this, in the 10th verse, the apostle had just laid out in verses 7 through 9, another woman, another father, and another conception. Or should we say women and multiple conceptions, Because there were three wives of Abraham and eight sons. Paul had justified and proved that there was an election within Israel, which started this whole chapter. Remember, the first five verses were just a preface, a kind and gentle introduction. And it was verse 6 that in the first half answered an objection. In the second half introduced a doctrine. Very divisive, very hard to the Jews. And it was introduced with these words. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. There are two Israels. There is a national or ethnic Israel, and there is a spiritual or elect Israel. And Paul taught it in those few words in the second half of the sixth verse. He then illustrated it, by going after the Jews' greatest confidence, and that is their relationship to Abraham. And he points out in verses 7 through 9 that being the children of Abraham did not prove anything because God's blessing was only upon 12.5% of those children, or one-eighth of them, the son of promise, the son of Sarah, because the son of Hagar, whose name was Ishmael, was rejected, and the six sons of Keturah were rejected 
Out of eight sons of Abraham, it didn't matter that he was your biological father. It didn't matter that you were of the stock of Abraham. It didn't matter that you were of the seed of Abraham. You were not children unless you were Isaac. And so Paul pointed out by the first example of the greatest patriarch, Abraham, that biological relationship to Abraham didn't cut it. That seven that had such biological ties and reproductive ties with him being their father were not the children of God. Only one was the child of God by the promise of God through Sarah, the free woman. And that was in verses 7 through 9, and we dealt with that last week. Paul's first illustration of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac was profound and a powerful rebuke to the trust of the Jews in their relationship to Abraham. And though this example was very weighty, Paul didn't stop there, but rather raised another one. We could say that he was piling on. And rightfully so, for the Jews were arrogant in their confidence in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now he gives another example that God chose between the twin sons of Rebekah, conceived by the second patriarch, Isaac. It is profound wisdom for our apostle, our brother Paul, to prove election among Jews in 60 A.D. by referring now to the second patriarch, Isaac. Do you know how wise this is? Do you know how potent and powerful it is to deal with a Jewish audience to go after Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Those are the three fathers. By the time you get to the fourth generation, there's 12 sons, and so they're seldom mentioned. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because out of those men, there was only one chosen by God. Out of Jacob, there were 12 sons that made up the 12 tribes. If God makes a determinate choice among sons of these great men, he could easily do it in Paul's day. Amen. Dealing with Abraham's children and then with Isaac's children was about as sacred of an example as wisdom could design for the sake of these Jews. I love the Word of God. Paul's going to get to logical arguments about God being the potter, and us being the clay, they're found later, after verse 18. Paul's going to get to quoting Scripture, where he proves it from the language of the Bible. But here, he's drawing examples out of families, where if they had read carefully, they would already have known these points. But because they knew these Scriptures so well, Paul only had to mention them, and they would have been quickly understood, and is, and very weighty. Not only this, meaning there's more than just Abraham's eight sons with one of them being chosen to be a child of God and the other seven rejected. But when Rebekah also had conceived by one, the also there tells us we are talking about a conception and we are going to deal with children. But we are told conception is by one. Now the other conception was by one father, but there were three women involved. And so it would have been easier, it it might have been easy for a Jew to think to themselves and excuse that election that, well, Hagar doesn't count. Keturah doesn't count. They were concubines. The free woman was Sarah. No wonder. It wasn't because of God's electing decrees. It wasn't because of God's choice. It was because of their mother. Okay. But when Rebekah had also conceived by one, one woman, one man, conceiving twins in her womb, Jacob and Esau. And so the apostle, by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, is going to take this doctrine of election to another level. In a family, a godly family, of a patriarch of Israel named Isaac, and his chosen God-fearing wife named Rebekah, they are going to conceive fraternal twins and those twins with the same mother and the same father are going to have God's election made between them. God will choose one and reject the other. The The example and the illustration and the language could not be 
more powerful and weighty about God's decrees and God's will in the choice of some and the rejection of others. In the very next generation after Abraham and Sarah, their son of promise, Isaac and his wife Rebekah, in Abraham's family tree, another election took place immediately in the next generation. This second example provides another convicting election in the families of the Jewish patriarchs. Powerful illustration. It was after the twins' conception, when they wrestled in her womb, that God told her His choice. That's why we have the word when. And not only this, but when, Rebecca also had conceived by one, and you got to jump all the way down to verse 12 to find out what happened with the word when. But when those twins were wrestling in her womb, and she went to the Lord to ask, what is this turmoil inside me in my womb? And the Lord told her, There's two people there, there's two nations there, there's two groups of people. The elder is going to serve the younger, but that's in verse 12. We'll get to it in a moment. The reason that one is mentioned here, conceived by one, I mean it's hard to conceive by two. The point being, one father and one mother making the case tighter and more weighty than the first example of Abraham and Sarah. Those holding salvation by race have a real problem here because they have the same father and the same mother, but God chose one and rejected the other. Even by our father Isaac. Did a Jewish audience need to know the name of the man who fathered children by Rebekah? But he's mentioned just to add weight to the argument of the apostle. Paul is very brief at times, and yet Paul's choice of words, and you know that I do believe that God inspired every word for weighty reasons. That he names Isaac because of their constant repetition of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, Paul's going to deal with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God having chosen Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, Isaac out of his eight sons, and Jacob out of Isaac's twins, even by our father Isaac. The Jews knew it, but naming the patriarch adds weight to the argument. Paul took the first father of the Jews and showed God's election by choosing one and rejecting seven. Paul took the Jews' second father and showed God's elected election by choosing one and rejecting the other twin. Now what we have in verse 11 is in parentheses. And when something is in parentheses, you are allowed by the English language to pass over it, to continue the main line of reasoning and the main thought. So you would go from verse 9, from verse 10 to verse 12, excuse me. We're going to come back to verse 11 because it's in parentheses. When it says in verse 10, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, it was said unto her. The it was said unto her relates right back to when Rebekah had conceived and had twins wrestling in her womb. So for the moment, we're going to put verse 11 aside. We're going to come back to it because we want to continue the main thought. You're supposed to do that. That's why it's in parentheses. It's telling you it's extra information that is not directly connected in the line of reasoning, but it's information there that is important to the overall lesson, but we'll get it in its place. Right. So we're at verse 12 right now. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. God revealed his choice of Isaac to Abraham. It's in verse 9 of this chapter. For this is the word of promise, at this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. In Genesis chapter 17, God spoke to Abraham and told him that he was going to have the promised son by Sarah to Abraham in private. In Genesis chapter 18, God told Abraham that Sarah was going to have a son with Sarah in the tent, able to hear the Lord's words. But in both cases, God made the revelation because God made the choice and God makes the revelation. And thanks be to God, he's made a choice on your behalf and my behalf and he has revealed it in writing. 
in writing. Praise his name in writing. That he chose, he tells us when he chose us. Before the foundation of the world. He he tells us where he chose us. In Christ Jesus. He tells us the benefits of the choice. That we were made accepted in the beloved. That we were made holy and without blame. Before him in love. He tells us the result of the choice. That we have an eternal inheritance. And our bodies are his purchased possession. And he's coming back for us. Thank God for his revelation of his election. He tells us how to make our calling and election sure. He tells you the nature of true election. You can look at another person and know they're elect. First Thessalonians chapter one, verses two through four. Paul said about the Thessalonian church that he always gave thanks for them for their work of faith. Just a profession of faith is no more than the devils have. It is the work of faith. In James chapter 2, the man says, Show me thy faith without thy works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Because it's the work of faith. It's faith that results in a changed life that is the evidence of eternal life. It is the work of faith. It is the labor of love. It's not just saying, I love the brethren. I love the church. It's love that results in works toward others. It's the labor of love, and it's the patience of hope. It is hope in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope of heaven that causes you to be cheerful no matter what happens to you in life. No matter what happens on the job, no matter what happens to your health, no matter what happens to your finances or your family, you are still cheerful and you patiently bear it because of your hope of heaven. It's not just singing that you have a hope. It's not just saying you have a hope. It's a hope that keeps you cheerful and happy in spite of negative circumstances. I'm chasing a little rabbit right now and I don't want to spend any more time there, but did you hear me? It's the work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope. Paul said, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Isn't it? Aren't you glad that God told us how we can know we're elect? You say, well, I don't know if my faith has any works, my love has any labor, or my hope has any patience. Well, get busy. Do you know what the Apostle Peter would say? Give all diligence to this matter. And he said, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to keep reminding you of these things, though you presently be established in this truth. Because this is important for the assurance of our own souls that we're God's elect, and because everything that you do to give assurance to your own soul is going to benefit the kingdom of heaven and bring glory to God, because they're all acts of righteousness. That was all because... God revealed His choice to Sarah and Abraham, and God revealed His choice to Rebecca. Because it says in verse 12, it was said unto her. And I'm going to trust that you read Genesis chapter 25 last evening, and you know the story there of the twins wrestling and poor Rebecca. You know, she hadn't had twins wrestle inside her before, but when she asked midwives and others, and maybe they looked at her belly and gave her an ultrasound, and saw these two twins in there wrestling, and one looked a little weak, and the other looked pretty strong, and maybe that little weak guy could get hurt by the big strong one. We don't know how she found out why it tormented her so much, but she said, I need to go to the Lord about this one. There's something serious going on inside me. Maybe she couldn't sleep at night because of her wrestling twins, but when she went to the Lord, the Lord said, you have two nations, two kinds of people inside of you, and they're going to be, they're going to be warring against each other, and the elder's going to serve the younger. The firstborn's going to come out first, and he ought to, by nature and tradition, get the blessings in your family of the preeminence, but it's the second one that comes out, the younger, that's going to have the preeminence. And his older brother is going to serve him. That is what is said in Genesis chapter 25 in explanation to Sarah as to what was going on. The Apostle Paul just raises it as an example of how God made a choice between two twins in a mother's womb. God declared two nations and people to Rebekah, and the one surely did serve the other. During the actual personal lives of Esau and Jacob, we don't see a whole lot of the servitude of the preeminence, but we sure do later. The greater and larger matter of nations shows God's favor on one and rejection of the other in general. But that's not the apostle's point. That was the Lord's point to Rebekah. 
We do not take the corporate national view of this election due to the context demanding us to do otherwise. When we come into Romans chapter 9 and we start reading about this horrible, as many describe it, doctrine of election, we do not make this election simply national privilege over other nations. We make this personal election to eternal life. Because that is the apostles' context. Let me show it to you briefly. Many reduce the election of these four verses, Romans 9, 10 through 13, to mere national privilege of Israel over Edom. Edom was the other name of Esau. Edom means red because Esau was covered with red hair and Esau... Anyway, it's Edom. We don't need to spend any more time there. So there were two nations that resulted from these two men, Esau and Edom, and some... Well, all Romans 9 is talking about that Israel had God's favor and Edom didn't really have God's favor. That may be part of the case in Genesis 25 or even a majority of the case. And it may be part of the case or even a majority of the case in Malachi chapter 1. But that is not why the Apostle Paul is bringing up the argument because the Apostle Paul is not dealing with national privilege. In fact... The Apostle Paul is rejecting national privilege because his whole point is, even though you have the national privilege of being part of Israel, you are not all of Israel. The ingenuity of men have been worked and worked and worked to try to get out of Romans 9, 10 through 13 because they do not want to admit personal, unconditional election to eternal life. You would not believe the efforts made to change this doctrine so that you end up with Romans 9 being a confusing mess because the, the, the apostles' argument in verses 4 and 5 was describing all the national privileges, but he's talking about a spiritual election that goes way beyond the national privileges. Right. Please see it. I don't have more time. Because I have more arguments. First, it's the context. It's not national privilege. It's the opposite of national privilege. It's outside of national privilege. It's beyond national privilege. They are not all Israel, which are of Israel, is the point he's proving. Second, in Romans chapter 9, verses 22 through 24, we are going to have vessels of mercy, which are also called vessels of glory, and we're going to have vessels of wrath. We're going to have vessels that God made to honor and to dishonor. And we are not talking about national privilege. We are talking about salvation because that's what the apostle is going on, continues in the context to describe. That he had a four prepared into glory. And that glory is eternal glory. That's the glory of eternal life, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. It is not national, it is spiritual, because it's made up of Jews and Gentiles. Verse 24. Are are you with me on that one? Okay, good. Then we keep going. In between the concluding argument there in verse 24, and the opening argument in verse 6, that they are not all Israel which are of Israel, Paul says that the issue... Under consideration is the children of God in verse 8. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. The issue is the children of God. Who are the adopted children of God? Who are God's children? Who are God's heirs? And he is talking about pulling them out of the privileged nation. Paul's grief and his willingness to be rejected from Christ in verses 1 through 3 was not for some stupid national privilege because they already had them and he didn't care anything about such things. He cared about something far more important than that, something of a spiritual nature. The proposed... The proposed question and its dogmatic answer and explanation that follow in verses 14 through 16 tell us that this is not mere national privilege. The Jews did not need any help knowing that to be an Israelite was a blessing over being an Edomite. But why in verse 14 does the Apostle Paul have to take up a question that he knows is going to be in their mind? What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Do you think that a Jew would have thought there was unrighteousness because God loved Israel more than Edom? (laughs) With me on that point. Why is verse 14 there? 
Because whatever was said in verses 10 through 13 is very contrary to Jewish thinking. It's because there was an election within Isaac's, Rebekah's womb. A spiritual election. And they're going to, the question is, is there unrighteousness with God for making a choice like that? What does Paul say when men ask questions like that? God forbid. Do you love your apostle? Amen. Did God raise up a pretty great man and did God inspire him in a, in a succinct way to get the point across? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. There is real love under consideration here, and there is real mercy under consideration here. This is not some ridiculous national privilege. The whole passage is against national privilege that there's an election within the privileged nation. The issue at hand that required Paul's gentle and sensitive introduction was a spiritual election within Israel that was contrary to their thinking, and Paul established it by election in the patriarchs' own families. We are getting advanced revelation here because we're in the New Testament, not the Old. I will readily grant that in Genesis chapter 25, the two nations are primarily under consideration. I will easily grant that in Malachi chapter 1, the two nations are primarily under consideration, where Malachi the prophet is rebuking the nation for not appreciating the privileges that they had as the nation of God against God's rejection of the nation of the Edomites. But in Romans chapter 9, Paul has just raised those two quotations to show that God pulled the two twins apart. But the issue is the context of Romans 9. We do not interpret Old Testament quotations found in the New Testament by the Old Testament setting. We interpret Old Testament quotations found in the New Testament by the New Testament setting. And I know you're not in a hermeneutics class right now, but I just laid something very precious on you. Amen. Or you will end up in confusion. Do not go back to find out what Amos thought in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, when he said that God is going to rebuild the tabernacle of David. Go to Acts chapter 15 and let James tell you by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, with the spectacles of Acts chapter 15 now, when you go back and read Amos chapter 9, it's as simple as falling off a log. But that's the benefit of the New Testament. It's it's progressive revelation. The 66 books of the Bible are building on each other. Verse 13. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. If you read your Bibles last night, as I suggested, that's found in the first five verses of the prophet Malachi. No doubt the issue of Malachi's words were a rebuke for Israel for not appreciating their national favor. No doubt about that in Malachi. However... The basis or source of this national preference was God's personal election of men because he loved Jacob and he hated Esau. And the Apostle Paul explains that here because the context that Paul is driving at is personal, unconditional election to eternal life. The vessels of mercy afore prepared into glory made up of Jews and Gentiles as 24 is going to conclude. It is an election from out of the privileged nation of Israel as verse 6 introduced when we started. They are not all Israel which are of Israel. It's dealing with God's personal choice for salvation. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Does God have a right to love and to hate whomever he will? That's what verses 15 and 16 tell us. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God is not bound by His nature to love sinners. If you think that God is bound by His nature to love sinners, why doesn't He love the devil? If He loves the devil, how does He show it? If He hates the devil, which I think you're coming to the conclusion, does He hate the devil's seed that He calls the children of the devil? This introduces the doctrine of the hatred of God, and I do not have time to do this doctrine justice. This doctrine has been preached before in other generations by men who feared God and men who believed the Bible. In this effeminate generation that we live in, where women go to Bible studies by short-haired dykes, they don't have any idea of what the Bible teaches. They do not know the doctrine of the Word of God. They reject that doctrine. They cannot stand the idea of a God that would choose one of their twins and reject the other twin. But I'm going to tell you a woman 
that has humbled herself before God and has read this Bible and knows that we are all sinners by Adam and we are all sinners by ourselves, knows that if God were fair and if God were just just and if God were just righteous and if God were only holy, both of her twins would go to hell. It's by the grace of God that any of us are ever saved. He should send all of us to hell like He sent all of the fallen angels to hell. That's where we all deserve to go. There is a holy God in heaven. He is not cotton candy. He is not watching from a distance. He does not hate sin and love the sinner. He hates sin and the sinner. And the only way He can love any of us is because He chose us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And the reason He continues to hate the devil and His angels is because He didn't choose any of them in Christ Jesus before the world began. And that makes all the difference in the world. It lifts up the grace of God and the choice. It lifts up the Lord Jesus Christ where we were chosen. And it should lift up our hearts to bless and praise Him in whom all spiritual blessings are for having given them to us in Christ Jesus before the world began and having made us accepted in the Beloved. Because if we weren't in the Beloved, we wouldn't be accepted by Him. There's nowhere in the Bible that tells you to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. It's in the Bible that God must accept you through His personal Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. that He sent on your behalf. That's Ephesians 1.6. He's made us accepted. Not that He's made us accepting. He's made us accepted in the Beloved. Amen. Thank you, blessed God. Yes. The feminine concept that God hates the sin, but loves the sinner is not found in the Bible at all. The Bible declares that God hates sinners. We've already read it in Psalm 5 and Psalm 11. Wasn't that enough for you? Or do you want to go to Proverbs chapter 6 where it says these six things God hates, yea, seven, are an abomination unto Him. And when you go look at those things, sometimes it's not a thing. Sometimes it's not a sin. It's the one committing that sin that is listed there in chapter 6. God is holy and He has to hate sin and sinners. No matter how good and loving He is, He can only love holy objects. Because He's a holy God. His love and His hatred define Him. Because He loves things that are good. He loves things that are righteous. He loves things that are pure. He loves things that are holy. And for that to stand in His nature, He must hate things that are unholy, unrighteous, wicked, polluted, and defiled. Things that are defiled cannot get into heaven. Revelation 21 and verse 27. And if you've ever told a lie and you're not in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll never get into heaven. Because all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire because God abhors the deceitful man. I've told many lies in my life. Am I lost without hope? My hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the faithful and true witness. Do you know what my reputation is in heaven? The faithful and true witness. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless His holy name. God is holy and He must hate sin and sinners, all of them, every single one of them, with exception, just like He does the devil and His angels. Do you know why there are angels that God approves of and loves and are in His presence all day long? They have two names. They have two adjective names in the Bible. Can you help me with the two names? The elect angels and the holy angels. He elected and chose them to keep them in their holiness, and that's why they're in His presence But those angels that He let sin, He is reserved in chains unto everlasting punishment. And that's where all men will go, except for those that were chosen in Christ Jesus before the world began. Except for those that God loved, like Jacob. The rest, like Esau, will be sent to hell, not because God is mean, because God is holy, and He gave us the chance for eternal life in the Garden of Eden, and Esau and his father, named Adam, chose rebellion against God. Right. Rebellion against God? And would they rebel every day of their lives? Did you notice in that one song that there is a gospel message preached throughout the world from sun to sun? That is God's creation in Psalm 19 verses 1 through 6. They are without excuse. God calls on men every day to repent and they never repent. They're enemies. There are so many verses that could be raised. God can and does love only holy objects. Sinners must be in Jesus Christ to be holy and without blame. In the great day of judgment, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to say to the wicked, Depart from me, ye that 
work iniquity. Those are workers of iniquity. See, they're still workers of iniquity. Jesus didn't pay for their sins. They're still workers of iniquity. I never knew you. What does that mean? I never loved you. It doesn't mean I never knew about you. It doesn't mean I didn't know the number of hairs on piece of DNA that makes you up. I never loved you. Right. He will say to the wicked as he sends them to their, their the cup of their portion, their, the cup and the portion of their inheritance. God hates bastards according to Hebrews chapter 12 because he never shows them his love. His love requires chastening. That means light modified punishment in order to bring about a good end, but he never gives that to the wicked. And we read that, didn't we, in Psalm 5 and Psalm 11. Right. Did, you, did you see Scripture coming together as we read? I hope you did. Amen. God's holy law, according to Romans chapter 2, we've already studied this, says that God must bring indignation, wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every sinner. You want to see it? Yeah. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 and verse 8. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth. Did Paul have, know some contentious Jews that didn't want to obey the truth? What does God's law and His righteous law say? But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, here's what God must give. Indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, upon every soul of man that doeth evil, this is Romans 2.9, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. God is bound by His nature to punish every sinner that way. And unless He pours out that tribulation and anguish, indignation and wrath upon the Lord Jesus Christ in your stead... You will receive it yourself. What about unbelievers? John 3.36 says that if you're an unbeliever, you have the wrath of God abiding on you. Not the love of God. The wrath of God. By rejecting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you put yourself in a category with Esau where the wrath of God is abiding on you because His wrath is abiding on all the foolish, all the wicked, as Psalm 5, Psalm 11, the rest of the Bible tells us, including Romans chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 39 that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God can only love those that are in Christ Jesus because that's where the love of God is found, located, and given to us. In Romans 8.39, unless you were chosen in the Lord Jesus Christ, that love can't be expressed or had towards you. How do we know that we're in the Lord Jesus Christ? We believe on the message and the witness and the testimony that He gave of His Son Jesus, and we keep His commandments. And we have the work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope. And we add to our faith virtue, knowledge, godliness, patience, temperance, brotherly kindness, and charity out of 2 Peter chapter 1 to make our calling and election sure. The Bible says in Psalm 11, God is angry with the wicked every day. So shall we assign love or hate to them? Because God is angry with them every day. It's the hatred of God. It's a whole doctrine. It deserves a whole sermon. It deserves a sermon series. God's hatred of sinners is an obvious and logical extension of His acts in history and in the future. Why do God loves everybody? Heretics, those who believe God loves everybody. Why don't they ever want to talk about the devil? Does God love the devil and does God love the devil's angels? I mean, he's a whole lot greater than they are. The the devil was the anointed cherub of God. The devil was in the presence of God. He is is greater in glory and might and and power than we are. If anyone deserves to be loved by God, it's the devil. Why Why don't you feel sorry for him instead of feeling sorry for yourself, you little rebel? It's because you're so full of pride, you think you're more important than the devil. Because mankind is obsessed with themselves. They can't imagine a God that isn't as obsessed with them as they are with themselves. They cannot imagine it. I'm serious about this. They can't imagine it, that God would not think of them the way they think of them. The way they think of them is according to a deceitful heart that is desperately wicked above all things and deceitful above all things. Look at Eden. When you look at Eden, do you see the hatred of God? Do you mean to tell me one man ate the fruit off a tree he was told not to eat and every one of his 90 billion descendants 
will spend an eternity in the lake of fire for eating the wrong piece of fruit? That sarcasm in me, you know, I don't mean that irreverently because I love the God of the Garden of Eden. And if Adam had had two wits, he would have run out from those trees and cast himself at the feet of the blessed God, his Creator, and begged for mercy. And if his righteous soul were sent to hell, God's law would have approved it well, but he could have gone begging, but instead he went excusing. We don't know where Adam is. We sure don't see any good evidence in Genesis chapters 3 through 5. I look at Eden and I see the hatred of God. I look at the flood. I see the hatred of God. You know, we've made, we've almost made this into a joke, but it's not a joke. It's incredibly serious. Did Noah have a great big life ring on the side of the ark with a smiley face that said, smile? God loves you. Like everybody wants to stick on their bumper. Where's that found in the Bible? That David, before he killed all the Philistines, went into town and put out tracks. Smile, Philistines. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I'm about to give it to you. On the end of my sword. Why are we so different? And brethren, if you think that I'm haughty up here about this, I'm scared, I'm trembling, and I'm sweating. I am preaching something that is so rare today, it's scary to preach it. But I made a decision a long time ago, as bad as I am, and as unfaithful as I am, that's what I'm going to preach. And I don't know anything else, and I don't care about anything else. I'm going to preach the Word, and the Word tells me all this. The Word tells me that little waterlogged babies with their diapers so full of water bounced up against the side of that ark and Noah was inside and God shut the door and he didn't want them getting outside to pick up little babies. You say, what could a baby have done to deserve going to hell? Eating the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil through their perfect, mature, fully grown father, Adam. Just like Jacob and Esau, God chose one and rejected the other. Don't you feel sorry for that little red, that little red fuzzball, Esau. You bless the God of heaven as to why in the world he would choose Jacob. Amen. Instead of worrying about God hating anyone, I can't understand why God would love anyone. That's right. I'll tell you one thing. You bless, the, you bless yourself and you bless God that Jehovah is your God and not me. Because if I was your God, I'd have started over after Eden. I'd have saved some angels maybe, but I wouldn't have saved you. And I only say that because you think the same way about me. When I look at Calvary, I see the hatred of God because look what He did to His only begotten Son, His only beloved Son. He turned His back and would not look with favor on His Son. He let Him die alone. My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? I see the hatred of God against sin and sinners because my guilt was put on Jesus Christ when my guilt was put on Him, though He was perfect who knew no sin. My sin was enough to turn God away from him. I can't stand that. And he poured out his wrath upon him. And it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And when we talk about bruising, we're not talking about falling down on the carpeted floor and having a little bruise on your knee. We are talking about having your visage so marred more than any man because your beard was ripped out by the ruts and you were smashed in the face by Roman soldiers. And you had thorns pounded down into your head. It pleased the Lord to do that to him. His beloved son. Why? Because his hatred against sin and sinners was poured out on his only begotten son. Who went and took that willingly for you and me. You better get excited about singing a few songs in a few minutes. And about coming to his table. Because we're going to remember... His death for us, because if He hadn't come and died for us, the hatred and wrath of God would be waxing hot against us. Very hot against us. I look at the lake of fire, and what do I see? The world says that's God's love for the wicked. If you believe that God loves everybody, when He casts them into an eternity in the lake of fire, that's how He expresses His love. Because he loves them. Remember, he loves them. But they rejected Jesus. That doesn't matter. He still loves them. He loves them. This is how he shows love. 
This is the love of the God of the Christian world out there. When God loves someone, they're going to hear these words. Not depart from me, I never knew you. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Amen. What a difference. Have we been given a wonderful doctrine? I hope you know why I read a letter from someone else. Do you think... If you think for a second I read that for any self-serving purpose, you don't know me very well. I want to provoke you. So there's people at a distance that are church members and come from big Christian families that wish they could be here with you. God's man David hated sinners. Right. He says, I hate them with a perfect hatred. Do you know what we can know about that in Psalm 139? That if David, the man after God's own heart, hated them, then God hated them a whole lot more. Because anything that David did that was righteous, God does it infinitely. In less than five minutes, turn back to verse 11. Now go get the parentheses. When I first came to Greenville 27 years ago, I wrote a sweet little tract entitled, God Hates All Sinners. Then, Bible proofs God hates all sinners. Then, the distinguishing love of God, and I pulled them out of a, an ancient file this past week and, and read over them again. I went online to see how many men I could find that believed in the hatred of God. There's so few, but there are some, and every one, every one. Let me kiss them. There's so few. It's not that I delight in the hatred of God other than that I delight in everything that God is. I delight in the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ, that He could love you and me. His hatred makes perfectly good sense to me because I would hate all of us if I were God. That doesn't prove anything either. It's the Bible that tells us that. He's holy. We've never even been holy like God. If we were holy like God, sin would so offend us that it would be no problem at all for us to understand. But we come back to verse 11, and we have the Apostle Paul's words now. These are not the words of Malachi addressing the nation. These are not the words of God addressing Rebekah. These are the words of the Apostle Paul giving us some explanatory material about this choice of one twin and the rejection of the other. For the children, he's not talking about nations. For the children, not the nations. This is no national privilege. This is the difference between children. For the children being not yet born, while they were still in their mother's womb, neither having done any good or evil. Adam is set aside for the sake of this argument. We know that Adam should not be set aside in the sake of all arguments because of Romans chapter 5. But for this particular argument, Adam is set aside so that we're looking at Jacob and Esau because the point that the apostle is establishing is that election is unconditional based on any performance by the objects of the election. Adam works into election in a different sense. God sends no one to hell without regard for their sins. And we have the sin of Adam, and we have our own sins. The point here is that the election is unconditional. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil in themselves. They had a sin nature from Adam, but that is being put aside. And you have got to learn to do that and just pick up what argument the apostle is making. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, to have God reacting in the way of reward or punishment, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. It is God's purpose that made the difference between Jacob and Esau. It was not that Jacob was a better boy than Esau, or that Esau was a worse boy than Jacob, although there were tendencies in that direction, and opposing tendencies by those two sons. But that is irrelevant. The apostle in parentheses by the Holy Spirit is telling us, God made choice in His own purpose. That he was going to bless Jacob and choose Jacob and save Jacob. And that he was not going to bless Esau. And he was going to reject Esau and not save Esau. Because that is the point under consideration in Romans chapter 9. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, it was just God's choice. As we're going to read in a few verses... He is the potter and we are the clay. And the choice is to eternal life or to eternal condemnation. 
The purpose of God, according to election, might stand. Election is the working out of God's purpose, and it will stand. When God has a purpose, and God elects based on that purpose, there is no one in heaven, earth, or hell that can overthrow that purpose. It will stand. And God made a choice between those two boys, and it stands. And it didn't have anything to do with them. It had everything to do with God. He was the one upon which it turned. That the purpose of God, not the purpose of Jacob to be one of God's elect, not the purpose of Esau to be a profane child of the devil and to hate God. It had nothing to do with that. It had to do with this, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Verse 15. That the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works. It wasn't what Jacob did or what Esau didn't do, but of him that calleth. It all comes back to him, and the him is Almighty God. The him is the I will, the I will, the I will, the I will of verse 15. So then it is not of him that willeth. It didn't matter what Jacob did, and it's not of him that runneth. It didn't matter what Esau did. And Esau cried with great tears and begged to get his earthly blessings back. And he received no place. But of him that calleth. What shall we say then? This doctrine is so hard, there, there pops up a question. If God makes choices like that, he's bad. He's unrighteous. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Because God makes choices like this according to his own purpose? God forbid. And then he'll go on and explain it. And I'll go on and explain it with you as soon as we're able to be back here together again. God would hate you without the Lord Jesus Christ because you are foolish and a worker of iniquity by nature. You are a child of wrath by nature. Do you know what that means? A child of wrath. Does that mean that you get angry sometimes? Or does a child of wrath mean that God is angry and intends to destroy you by nature. We are children of wrath by nature, but we were chosen in Christ Jesus before the world began. God does not hate you if you were in Christ Jesus. God loves you inseparably if you are in Christ Jesus. You can never be separated from that love, and He will see you all the way into His eternal presence, body, soul, and spirit, because He loves you. That is the love preached in this church. It sees every object of God's love altogether saved into heaven. Make your calling and election sure. As soon as we break up this assembly in your conversations with others, let it be the work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope. When we come back into this second assembly and you're singing songs about the Lord Jesus Christ, Lift Him up in your heart and adore Him and worship Him and thank God for Him and get rid of every extraneous thought and throw it and flush it and lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and make your calling and your election sure. His purpose has already established it. But I want all of you to be able to put your love in Him and rejoice as we read in the 11th Psalm. Though it was about the hatred of God, it was about the joy of the righteous. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.